Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week, a commercial property special. We're interviewing Wayne Ravel, who's the Managing Director at Active Commercial. Wayne's got a really interesting background, starting with engineering and into financial services. He's certainly got a very clever business brain, but his specialty is commercial property investing. And we have a chat to him for advice on doing your due diligence, all of the little tips and tricks that you need to know if you're wanting to invest in commercial property and some of the opportunities for investors in investing in managed commercial property trusts. So not just for high net worth individuals, uh, for also mum and dad retail investors as well. It's an awesome interview with Wayne. We have a few little live via satellite audio lags, but the gold's in there nonetheless, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. Here's Wayne. Wayne Ravel, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to getting you on for a while because your area of expertise is something that I think is really, uh, I guess, uh, of interest to residential property investors. But before we dive into that, can you give us a bit of a background as to who you are and what you specialise in? Sure. So I'm a manager of a commercial property real estate investment trust. Uh, We run a number of different trusts under my company called Active Commercial. And basically, we specialize in multi-tenanted commercial properties. Uh, we, we pull investors together, pull investors' funds together, and go and buy these larger centers so that all investors can have a piece of the pie and get involved in these larger commercial property deals that return great cash flow. Beautiful. And we're going to dive into that because my ears have pricked up with great <laughs> cash flow. Um, what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? Now, that's a great question, Mike. Um, I had to think about this one because, well, I I was always into nature. I grew up in Brisbane, so I loved you know, the bushwalking and things like that. I had pictures up of um, uh, the forests down in uh, on the borders of New South Wales and Queensland. Um, I also, when I was younger, so a young teenager, my parents took a trip up to Early Beach and Proserpine near um, Sunday Islands. While I was up there, I got a poster of um, the Sunday Islands. That fascinated me, looking at this poster, thinking who owned what and where people were and imagining sailing around these islands and visiting these various people who own these big islands and things like that. So, yeah, it really interests me, that type of thing. So, yeah, that was on Beautiful. my wall. Uh, yeah, bit of a funny story because when I went up there, I had a book my uncle bought me for my um, previous birthday. And it was Making Money Made Simple by Noel Whitaker. And while my parents uh-huh. and brother were walking on the beach, I had my nose buried in this book learning about depreciation on property and, <laughs> and, um, and tax benefits on shares, you know, franking credits and things like that. So, <laughs> yeah. You really know how to relax, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Noel's an absolute guru, that's for sure. Now, how did you first get started in in property, and what was your first investment? It sounds like you were you were into it pretty pretty early on on the beach doing your research. <laughs> so I got interested in finance when I was a little young, uh, as you just said, uh, very early on. Um, and as soon as I could, sort of like just uh, early twenties, I got out and bought my first residential property. It was a little um, uh, cheap property out in western suburbs of Brisbane. Um, it was cash flow positive and it's remained cash flow positive. I still hold it to this day. So, yeah, it 
it did Beautiful. return a lot. I mean, it was just a little trickle, a bit of an income, and it did need a bit of work at the start, but it was a good little thing to get involved in and learn the ropes and get on to understand how things worked. Beautiful. Now, let's take a bit of a, a step back to, to young Wayne. Mm-hmm. You studied manufacturing and materials engineering at university. It seems a really sort of specific degree. It's not kind of like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, so I'm just going to do manufacturing and materials engineering. What was it that you were sort of pointing towards with that degree? Well, look, I always had a fascination with the sciences, so that's the material sort of aspect of it. Um, I also had a, a real strong interest in business. Um, and, I mean, I don't know if you know engineering degrees, but when you start an engineering degree, your first year is a general engineering, everything. And later on, then you decide to specialise. So when I got into engineering, I found that yeah, if I wanted to get a bit of a business focus and understand how businesses worked, the best place and space to get that was in sort of the process or manufacturing side of things and to understand, you know, the ins and outs of business. Most engineers don't remain engineers. <laughs> Most engineers go on to become right. bank managers or senior managers in other corporations. So it was a good opportunity for me to basically get that, I guess, that way of thinking that allowed you to solve problems in a logical, methodological methodical process and yeah it was it was it really set me up i mean i think i probably worked a half a year in engineering <laughs> after that but yeah it was it right. was a really good degree to get involved in and understand how things worked and solve those problems that come up it's interesting you say that because I'm guessing that's that that's sort of like the the Henry Ford style setup where you're learning about business through the efficiencies of the production lines and that sort of thing. Am I on the right track? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and engineering tells you here's a problem. You've... What are the processes you need to go through and the steps and how do you solve it? I mean, I ended up in consulting and then finance and that sort of thinking allows me to look at problems and basically work through them and get solutions out that others wouldn't think of. So you spent five minutes in engineering <laughs> and then obviously moved into sort of business and finance, spending a lot of time in, in, in Asia with various roles. Can you give us a bit of a, a trajectory of what you were doing then? So I got into consulting in Australia. Funny because I, I, I studied this engineering degree, manufacturing engineering, and moved down to Melbourne, thinking Melbourne was the manufacturing capital of Australia, and then ended up in a consulting role <laughs> in an IT business. <laughs> right. So yeah, right. Didn't, yeah. As I said, five minutes in engineering. Um, I that consulting role led me around a bit, and I was doing a lot of um, different work with various companies, higher education um, uh, universities mostly, uh, and that sort of brought me up to Singapore and the notice of a uh, KPMG up in Singapore. Who was doing? Uh, who were doing some work with universities up there? So I was invited to Singapore to start to do a bit of work with them. I did a work with them for about a year, then moved back to Australia. And in the process, Saban's Oxy in the US came along and basically said that any auditing companies weren't allowed to have consultants anymore as there was a conflict of interest. So all the auditing companies started splitting off their um, consulting arms. In Singapore, KPMG became K-Solutions. 
And a year later, after being back in Australia, K-Solutions came along and offered me a job back in Singapore. So I moved up there and worked up with them in and around South Asia as a uh, manager of their one of their groups for about eight years, I think it was, seven to eight years. It was a great experience. I mean, there you it, go. it was fantastic living up there and understanding it. There's a lot of wealth in Singapore. Um, yeah, and yes. it, it, it's yeah. consulting in business and finance and things like that. So, yeah, it's a really interesting job. So, of course, you've, you have you learn quite a bit when it comes to the due diligence and obviously the business side of things. And and when you came back to Australia, you basically sort of dived headfirst into property investing. What what was sort of the, the motivation there? I'm presuming that you were continuing to invest as you were working in Singapore? Yes, yep. When I came back, um, my wife and I decided that we wanted to start our own business and uh, set ourselves up for our future. Uh, we also wanted to do something that helped others. So. I got a bit of education, did a few different things around property, got involved in the more creative stuff. Um, I played around with residential real estate in a number of different fashions. Um, eventually ended up in renovating and flipping. In doing that, uh, some of your listeners will probably know, uh, you try to search for the bargain basement properties. And you're gonna and and you know you pick these things up at a cheap price, well undervalued. You renovate them and you flip them out and make a profit. But it didn't quite sit well with my wife and I, because there's always a sad story involved in finding these bargain basement properties. Yeah. Somebody had sold these, yeah. this thing undervalued because they couldn't find any other way. So my wife and I sat down and thought maybe there's a niche here, something we can get into, and we built a company which basically help people who were in that situation who needed to sell their property but didn't have enough cash at the time to fix it up to get the best price. So we basically got in, we worked with the owners, we fixed their places up and we worked together and sold the property together. So we got to choose the agent, we got to choose what we needed to do. Uh, most of the stuff was cosmetic renos. We didn't want to get into the sort of like the structural stuff. And, yeah, it was good because we shared the profits with the owner. It allowed us to do twice as many properties. We didn't have to pay a stamp duty to buy them. It allowed us to really get a lot of um, uh, a lot of that good feeling and good emotion and connection with the owners who, you know, they made a profit out of it as well. Yeah, it really worked for us and we made a great business out of it and we got a lot of really heartfelt, very uh, positive stories out of it. So, yeah, it was really good. That's fantastic. That you know, that that's really inspiring. Where you 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 came to that sort of crossroads where you're sort of thinking, "Gosh, are we profiting on you know a little bit of misery here?" And absolutely got your your sleeves rolled up and, and did something positive. But but also, it's it sounds like a business that is pretty well grounded in in business practices. It sounds very successful as well. And one of the things with flipping is people talk about, oh, you look, the cost to, to get in and out with all the selling fees and the stamp duty, as you say, is pretty arduous, but you've you ma managed to find a way to avoid that. Yeah, exactly. By working with the owners, we were selling their property. There's no stamp duty involved. And stamp duty is one of the biggest costs of ownership in Australia. And if you're flipping, you lose a lot of money mm. on it. So, yeah, really, really. And is that business still in operation? Uh, no, we got a bit bored with it at the end. <laughs> 
it was uh, we'd done uh, a right. lot of these deals. Had a lot of good stories, but it was something that we decided we just had enough of and moved away from. And um, yeah, yep. I wanted to do something to keep my interest in and uh, change my focus a little bit. So I started getting involved in commercial property, which is where I ended up today. Yep. Um, it was then that my business. Let's um, let's talk about it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say let's let's dive into commercial. Yeah. Sure. Let's do that. So, I'm, so I was saying pre-pandemic. That, yeah, I was saying that. Yeah, so we've got a we've got a live via satellite issue here. So yeah. I'll, I'll jump out of the way. You were talking about your business partner. Yeah. So my business partner, a longtime friend, Tim Hart. Um, he was also started getting involved in commercial property as well. So he suggested that we start up uh, active commercial and start making what we do available to others. That's what we've got now. And now over to you, awesome. Mike. <laughs> yeah. I apologise to the listeners. Actually, I was reading some um, podcast reviews the other day and somebody said, yeah, Mike talks over the guests a little bit, and I'm very <laughs> very upset about that because often we have these little satellite uh, satellite issues. I, I, I try not to do it where I can. Um now, pre-pandemic, there was a real buzz around commercial investing. It's a bit sort of like developing. Residential property investors sort of seem to put that as, as something that they aspire to. You know, they'll purchase a few residentials and they'll do a development. Commercial seem to be the same. They purchase a few res- uh, residentials and the real goal is to get into commercial because of the, you know, the high yields and perhaps the prestige and that sort of thing. D- is, is that still the case? Is that something that you see? Actually, commercials really gained a lot of prominence in the last few years. And I think that's because there's a lot more knowledge and education about what it is and how it works in the industry. So there's a lot more people getting involved in commercial property than I've seen before. Um, Yes, there's still a bit of a buzz even post-pandemic, although I think there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Um, people have pulled back on all sides of investments. And at the start of the pandemic, uh, Real Estate Investment Trust took a, in Australia took a huge dive, more than perhaps was warranted given their valuations and their structures. But they've come back. Um, I've seen... Uh, I've seen a lot of sales, a lot of leasing activity occurring uh, in the last few months, which has surprised me. Uh, that's It's just really surprised me that things are still happening, that there are retailers now getting back into the market, leasing up new shops, um, selling businesses and buying businesses. There are um, a lot of the sales and yields or the prices of commercial property have remained unchanged. Even though sale volumes are down a lot, they're still they're still buying and selling at about similar prices to what they were pre-pandemic. The major hit with the COVID nineteen pandemic has been on shopping centres and prime office buildings in the CBD, and I think that will play out yeah, in the next and few months. It- it seems a bit similar to residential. The transaction volumes have dropped, but you know, the sellers and the buyers are kind of meeting together and there's a little bit of a balance, so there's not been a real real drop in prices. Is that really what's happening? Yeah, that's what I've seen, definitely. And you're sort of saying that there's, there's the real estate- investors who, have, um, who buy a few residential properties and aim or aspire to get into commercial. 
But with what I know now, I mean, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. You can buy a car parking lot for 40 grand and make a really good return on it. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be you need to build up a large cash flow or a large, um, a large sort of sum of money in the bank to get into commercial these days. I guess that the reason why people might sort of think about residential first and then moving into commercial, yeah, maybe traditionally it's been a finance sort of thing, but I think it, it comes down to experience as well. I think residential investors are aware that there are some key differences and some some real traps. Can you can you give us a, a, a basic insight into what's the difference between owning a residential investment property and a commercial other than the tenant is a business rather than, say, a family? Um. Okay, from a financial point of view, residential and commercial are valued differently. So when you buy a residential property, it's valued mostly based on emotion. How does the house look? Is it a good neighbourhood? Am I going to feel good to have my mates around having a barbecue on a Sunday night? So it's valued mostly based on emotion and transactions occur based on that emotion. Uh, land values go up and things like that, but people buy when they look at a house and go, can I live here? Does this make me feel good? And you'll see this at auctions. People get excited and they'll bid up prices and things like that. Commercial is entirely different. Hmm. Commercial is based on logic. It's based on finance. Uh, if I say I'm, I want a 3% return on my money, I'll go and buy a property and I'll only buy a property that will give me a 3% return on my property. On my, on my cash that I put in. So that's why we have what we call yields or cap rates, capitalization rates in commercial property. Um, we'll look at transactions and we'll look at, uh, you know, is this returning a good cash flow to me? If it's not, then it's not worth my time. I'm not going to get involved. So commercial is valued entirely differently. And as you said, you haven't got mum and dad's living in the house. You've got businesses. And businesses tend to look after the property better because they want to present it well. They want to sell their stuff. Um, they'll, den- they'll tend to um, they look after all the outgoings in uh, commercial. So usually a lease will have in residential. The owner needs to look after all the outgoings. If that's a problem, they've got to go in and fix the toilet. And commercial, it's the business. The business looks after the outgoings. They pay for everything. And if there's a problem, they fix it because it's their business. Also, it tends to be longer leases. Now, Sorry, mate. It tends to be longer leases. Um, no, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah uh, commercial property, you know, runs five-year leases. Residential, you might get 12 months. So you've got more certainty over your cash. The risks are, yes, uh, if there's a vacancy, it can take longer to find somebody to come in and take it over. Um, fill a vacancy. So you've got to be aware of that and have a little bit of a reserve in place. But because they're longer leases, you don't have those little pieces of vacancies all the way through your lease, all the way through the five years. You'll have one vacancy that might be you know, six months at the end or something like that in order to fill it. So, yes, have a bit of a reserve. Um, and the other end is, uh, you know, their businesses, they can go through troubles and you might have trouble sort of like moving them on or, um, or collecting or rents, but it's getting a good leasing agent to manage that and find your tenants for you. Yeah. 
You, you mentioned in the beginning that you invest in multi-tenancy commercial properties, and that seemed to be uh, a, a very obvious part of your sort of intro there. What are the advantages of, of a multi-tenancy style commercial property? Well, there's a couple of advantages, and this is all about trying to minimise that risk. So if you're a small investor, you can probably only, you buy a shop or a little office. You have one tenant in there. If that tenant leaves, you've now got you know, all the outgoings you've got to pay on that. And you've got vacancy, no income, and that's it. You're in trouble. I mean, unless you've got a reserve, as I said before, you've, you, you're making no money on it. With multi-tenancy, you're basically diversifying and spreading your risk. So if one tenant leaves, you've got all the other tenants still there paying your rent. If, um, if you've got multi-tenancy in different sectors, if one sector, for instance, retail gets hit or uh, at the moment, if you've got a restaurant and maybe you've got a, um, a beauty and massage place, if the beauty and massage place gets hit because COVID restrictions, the restaurant can still trade with takeaways and things like that. So allowing diversification across industries, allowing diversification of income in different places just spreads the risk and avoids some of those issues. That makes perfect sense. But I'm just wondering, is there a financial benefit as well? Let's say we have a 1,000 square metre office. Are you likely to get more rent in total if you broke that up into, let's say, 10, 100 square metre size um, leases? You're stealing all my secrets, Mike. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> smaller tenancies tend to release for higher prices so per square metre. So if you've got a number yep. of, uh, this is one of the strategies as well, buy a large block and split it up into smaller tenancies and uh, you know, lease them out as individual smaller tenancies. I mean, look at um, all these um, uh, working from uh, these combined offices where they've got uh, shared office space. They'll have, you know, they, they lease them by the desk nowadays. So, yeah, it, definitely it, it, you'll get a better price for it um, and you're building a better uh, income stream. Commercial yields, I think, are the, the thing that residential property investors look at all the time as being super attractive, you know, seeing 7 8 9%. I'm wondering... Um, when it comes to leases, are, are there risks that are involved that, that the residential property investor needs to upskill themselves on pretty quickly? And also, are there sort of opportunities? So like, for example, splitting it up, are there opportunities to purchase a commercial property, renegotiate leases, and suddenly you've got a commercial property that has a different valuation based on the on the capitalization rate? Definitely, definitely. So... One, one of the big things I look at when I'm looking at due diligence on properties is leases and what can we do within a lease. Often you'll find um, these, some of these commercial properties are run by large corporations that really don't care. That's just a small thing on their book that they keep on the side and they don't spend the time managing it properly. So I've often found you know, leases which haven't had the appropriate uh, upticks in, in rental because of you, most leases have um, a, a set increase in, le in rents every year or have had discounts for the tenant at the first couple of years and those haven't been, uh, those haven't been looked at or reapplied. So you might have benefits there. 
Um, you might have benefits where a lease is expiring soon, the tenant's looking at continuing, and you're going to renegotiate better terms. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of space in commercial to improve the income stream. Uh, you might find, as you sort of said, splitting up a larger space into smaller ones, uh, turning a bit of a car park into a little takeaway coffee section. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different ideas and strategies out there. And it doesn't just affect the income. With the way commercial property works, it affects the valuation. And you're basically building capital gain into your property by just looking at improving the income. It's a great little business. Interesting. And um, I know we've probably given away a couple of your secret herbs and spices already, but if you wouldn't mind, I'm interested in the steps that you take when you're doing a, a full due diligence on a, on a potential commercial investment. What can you, what can you share with us? <laughs> well, our due diligence is quite extensive. I mean, we are buying for mum and dad investors, so we need to be very, very particular, and I am very particular about what I buy. So I've got a very big list. <laughs> but broadly, it's broken up into six main sections. First, I'll look at the financials. Uh, do the numbers work? And can I get um, evidence for those numbers? Can I get rates notices? Can I get the bills from the um, contractors to make sure that the numbers that I've been told are correct? Next, I'll look at the demographics. Um, yeah, if I'm buying retail, have I got a good sort of a, a good basin for uh, for my population, for their shops and things like that are going to go in there? If it's medical, you know, is it in a, an aging population centre that's going to use the medical centre? If it's office, is uh, have I got good transport lines to get to that office? So the demographics are important. Now those two are probably very specific to commercial. The others, like uh, legal searches and building inspections, you typically see in residential as well. So you do all your legal searches, like your boundaries and your encumbrances on title and all the different things like that. So those are similar to uh, residential. Building inspections, um, you do a building and services report, a pest and building report, basically, to get in there and have a look at you know what the construction was like and things like that. There are different codes uh, in commercial property you need to be aware of and classifications of buildings. So, but your building inspectors will generally know that and have a look for those type of things. Uh, you get a depreciation report because depreciation is great in commercial. Um, it, with a lot of these buildings, they're large, they're new, they have large, um, uh, large machinery, some of them with the air conditioning and the lifts, and all of that stuff can be depreciated. And so there are some great tax benefits in owning commercial property. Um, I then also go out and interview my tenants and the people who are servicing the building, cleaners and um, lift technicians and everything like that, just to get a feel for how they feel about the building, if there's any issues they might have. Um, I'd also you know, talk to them about how businesses are going and whether they think they'll continue, things like that. And then finally, an important point in uh, commercial property is your valuation. Um, so, yeah, getting a value in to have a look at it and basically doing a valuation on it, a little bit more so than what you'd see in residential. Um, you probably just 
a lot of residential buyers would just let the bank do the valuation. But we actually like getting our own and having a look at it because there's a lot of information in it and very good information about the valuation and about the surrounding demographics and all the stuff that we've covered before. Yeah, valuation is the last thing. I also try to work through this list so that I'm doing the things that are cheap down to the most expensive stuff. Like the valuation is quite expensive and I'll leave that till the end. Because I'll, if I say no at any point along the line, I want to minimise how much money I've spent. Yep. Do you ever get to the point where you're sort of thinking, I'm in the hole for the due diligence so far, look, it's not perfect, but, you know, this is, we, we don't want to sort of crystallise the loss of, of the inspections and the experts and all that sort of stuff, or is it it's always very sort of cut and dry? You know, you never you never get upset about the, the cost that you incur to begin with. If it's the wrong investment, it's just, that's just what happens, part of the game. And that's why I tend to go through that process, Mike, where I, where I do the least expensive things like looking at the financials, getting all the documents first, down to evaluation, because you don't, this is a numbers thing. You, if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. I'd much prefer to lose five, ten grand now rather than buy into a commercial property that's going to drain me for the next five, six years. And be, a, and be very hard to sell at the end of it as well, especially if I'm looking at it and worried about picking it up. But due diligence mm. isn't just about saying no. It's about looking at it and saying, okay, we've got this problem. Is there an opportunity to fix it and make it better? I mean, a lot of properties are poorly managed, getting in there and, and the documents are all over the place. Getting in there, improving management uh, can really boost your income stream. And that's an opportunity then. You've just got to be aware of what the, what the risks and the opportunities are. That's why we do our due diligence. What are some of the things that investors neglect when doing commercial due, due diligence or, or could neglect? Let, let's say there's a, an enthusiastic investor that gives you a call and says, Wayne, I'm interested in working with you. And then he basically says, oh, look, I reckon I can do this myself. And they're walking out the door and you're thinking, gosh, this is not going to end well. What's, what's that person likely to miss in your hypothetical experience? We've probably already talked about this, but there are three main things that right. I see people miss. And that's doing the interviews, sitting down, talking with tenants, talking with uh, the service contractors, uh, finding out how they feel about the building. The owner, of course, is going to spin a very positive story about it. And then you might talk to the tenant. They say, <laughs> oh, no, we hate this area. It's terrible. I mean, we're getting out. <laughs> you go, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Big red warning flag there. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the areas I see a lot of people miss. Um, the other one is looking at detail at the leases. A lot of people just leave it to the lawyers and just go, okay, it's a lease. I can see I'm getting this much rent. But there's so much more to a lease. I mean, do we have exclusivity clauses? Are there clauses in there that allow the tenant to reduce the rent in certain circumstances? Um, uh, how long does this lease go for? And do we? what type of reviews have we got? So there's a lot in a lease and sitting down and, yeah, it's a lot of legal jargon, but going through it and putting your head around it 
you can see, I mean, this thing's going to be your lifeblood. The tenants are gold. You can understand what they're, where they are, what they can do and what they can't do. So that's another big area. And the third one is looking at council planning schemes and seeing what your building is and what you can and can't do within the building. Um, I've seen a lot of buildings come on the market. They've had great opportunity because they're not up to, uh, there's an opportunity to expand, to uh, increase the height of the building up to the maximum height or the floor space ratio. Uh, there might be an opportunity to put a medical in there, um, you know, which hasn't been in there before or change the purpose. Um, often there's a strategy where I've seen people buy um, uh, an industrial property and then it's been rezoned into residential and now suddenly they're, the, the prices are boosted because the land value has gone up. It's residential now. And they've converted it into apartments. So, mm -hmm. yeah, those are the, probably the three main areas I see a lot of people miss. And there's a lot of value in them. Yeah, and and of course, in that residential example, pretty pretty significant. And we all want to own a, a farm somewhere that gets rezoned into high density residential. Um, are there any particular industries that you focus in on as being more secure or more profity uh, profitable? So, for example, obviously, medical has proven itself to be pretty recession proof uh, at the moment. Is there are there any things that you zero in on? Well, you're right. I mean, medical is probably my first choice. Um, I do like retail, particularly uh, service industries, cafes, restaurants, that type of thing, the things you can't get online. Um, offices is another area that we focus on as well, and probably more regional or um, suburban office space. Uh, where it's lucky we haven't ever bought anything large in the city. Uh, with COVID-19, they've been impacted. And I think that's probably going forward that they'll also experience a, a, a little bit of a downturn as people, as businesses, use working from home as, as a business model more and more. But I still think there's a call for regional offices, somewhere to go to get away from home and the kids and everything else that's calling you and sit down and focus on what you're, what you're doing for a, life, uh, for a living. Um, Industrial is really good at the moment as well, but for me it was always hard to find multi-tenanted industrial stock. And so there's a real risk if you've got one tenant, as we said before, losing that tenant and having a vacancy. So, yeah, they're probably the sort of like few that I'd, I'd sort of focus on. Um, there's also a rise in popularity of dark kitchens and um, shared office space, dark kitchens being a... Uh, industrial sort of quality kitchens um, and all together in one space. The dark throws you off there on the quality, doesn't it? <laughs> it does a little bit, doesn't it? I don't know who came up with the name. But <laughs> the idea is is that uh, you move the kitchen space into uh, uh, almost like a warehouse or a, a, a larger building where you can have multiple, you know, half a dozen kitchens and, you know, High-quality restaurants will come in there, lease the kitchens, and do all the cooking for their Uber deliveries or Deliveroo or whatever, and they just send it out to the regional. So they're becoming very popular in the metropolitan areas. Um, yeah, and, and some really big names getting involved in dark kitchens. So, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> they are actually all perfectly perfectly well lit. It's mm. just, um, yeah, maybe the name um, needs a little bit of uh, workshopping. Now, Wayne, there's a number of ways that people can get exposure to commercial property within their portfolio. Of course, they can go and buy one, um, but there are ways to get involved in uh, real estate trusts or sort of pooled setups, and, and your business, Active Commercial, has a, a few different innovative-style ways that investors can get involved. Can you give us an insight into the options? Sure. So Active Commercial, uh, we buy multi-tenanted uh, commercial properties between 3 and $20 million. Uh, we basically pool investors' money together to buy those properties. So we often will go and look at, well, we've just done one recently up in Rockhampton, which is a sort of prime office space up in Rockhampton. Um, there were eight tenancies there. It's a beautiful old sort of building that's uh, luckily not heritage listed, but it's got um, some beautiful offices in it uh, and right in the middle of Rockhampton CBD. Uh, it's doing great. It's got government and medical tenants in there and um, uh, they've been in there for a long time. So uh, we bought that building for $4 million, got a lot of investors together, pulled it all together and um, uh, basically returning money to them at 11, just over 11% per annum. Um, we've got one that we're doing due diligence at the moment, which is up in the Sunshine Coast in Brisbane. And that's got medical and some retail in there. Um, and yeah, we're, we're putting together a structure and a fund for that, which will hopefully come out in the next few months. We open these up to both wholesale, so people who've got uh, um, you know, a lot of money and uh, sophisticated investors, and even retail investors, mum and dad investors, can get involved through our, um, our independent trustee. So, yeah, so we've got a lot of different options of ways to get involved. Uh, minimum investments range between twenty to fifty thousand dollars, so it's not a big investment. But yeah, it, it's it's opportunity to get involved in commercial property. You you mentioned wholesale versus retail style investors, so people might be aware of the the term sort of sophisticated investor, where you've got to prove that you're earning two hundred fifty k a year or something like that with pay slips or something written by your accountant, and and normally that's how a, a lot of these um, trusts will will work. But what what are what are sort of the nuances to that? What are the the rules for people that perhaps can't uh, they're not high net worth individuals. What what options are there available? So uh, the financial service industry is governed by ASIC and there's a lot of uh, regulation around it in Australia. If you are basically pulling more than 20 investors' funds together or you're managing uh, a property out with a third party or the investment out with a third party and not managing amongst yourselves, it's considered a managed investment scheme. And under ASIC, you have to be uh, licensed to do that work. Um, you have to have an Australian Financial Services licence. We have ours through an independent external trustee who keeps an eye on what we do and makes sure we do the right thing. Um, basically, as such, we can accept investment from different investor types. ASIC defines those investment types as wholesale, sophisticated or experienced, and retail investors. 
So as you said, sophisticated, people tend to know that. That's like $250,000. Uh, wholesale is um, you need to, I think it's $2 million in assets, um, $500,000 in a single investment or a million dollars per annum income, I think. Don't quote me on that, but it's just off the top of my head. Um, retail Not a problem I have at the moment, Wayne. <laughs> Retail investors are um, anybody, really, mums and dads, anything like that. Uh, through our independent trustee, um, we can accept anybody. And we have uh, offers that are open to retail investors as well as wholesale investors. So, yes, uh, it, if you're a retail, you'd probably be paying a little more in fees than if you're wholesale, but it's not that much more. Just on that, so taking that $4 million Rockhampton property as a bit of an example, it's it's returning investors 11%. Obviously, your, your business is managing these assets. So how do the fees sort of work? Is that basically coming out of the investor's share of the return, a little bit like the BRICX style with residential property? It is. Um, it, so there are different types of fees and uh, managed investment trusts have, uh, have a whole range of different types of fees. Um, we charge an acquisition fee to actually do all the due diligence and look at the property, find it and buy it. Um, we then have a management fee that we look after all the assets and keep going and uh, look after the investors, do our annual reports and our audits and everything like that. And finally, there's a performance fee. If we do really, really well and return investors more than 10% year on year, uh, internal rate of return, then we'll get a performance fee of everything above that. So, yeah, there's that's that performance fee is right at the end when we sell. So there are different types of fee structures. Um, if you are looking at any type of managed investment trust or real estate investment trust, it pays to look at those fees and see where you need to pay. Some trusts uh, have a fee to get in and a fee to get out. Some trusts have um, uh, fees when they sell, when they don't sell, uh, when they do development. There's a whole range of different things. We try to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. um, we, we are investors ourselves, and so we know what it's like. We know what these things do. So we try to keep it simple. And when we quote a return of 11%, that's net of fees. We've already paid the fees and that's what you're getting in your pocket. Wowzers. You mentioned before that there are opportunities to either invest in what I guess is a bit of a diversified trust which has a, a, a number of commercial properties or people can invest in a particular project. So you can say, look, we're about to acquire this particular property and there's opportunities to invest in that. What, what are sort of the advantages in either going with the diversified trust and wh why would people maybe sort of want to hedge their bets on one particular property? Um, a lot, we're finding a lot of investors like being invested in a particular property. They know it. They can see it. They get to know, uh, mm. you know, they, they sort of say, okay, I want a part of this building. So we've focused more on that at the moment with that particular property. Um, with pooled properties, Basically, you're getting a share of a diversified income. So you might have a couple of different properties across Australia or a couple of different sectors. Uh, and you basically, it's that diversification and protection of income. So if one sector falls down or has a, has a downturn, 
then the other sector hopefully will still be going strong and you'll still have an income stream or a good income stream coming from that. So there's that benefit in the pool property investment trust. Uh, we've got one which is ASIC Capital, which has a couple of properties in it, um, which, yeah, it allows that diversification over different, different industries, different regions, uh, metro versus regional, things like that. Yeah, beautiful. And obviously, there's there's quite a lot of opportunities for investors to to dip their toe in the in the commercial property world with that sort of thing. Is that is that would that be a recommendation for yourself rather than let let's say if someone's wanting to get started in commercial property investing? Are there quite a few risks involved in buying a property outright that maybe are, are mitigated by investing in a in a trust or or do the returns in owning the property yourself outweigh those risks? It's a difficult question to answer, I'm sure, but what are your, what are your thoughts? It depends on the trust. Um, look, there's, uh, fees are a big thing in any type of managed investment. If you're getting a good return despite the fees, I'm willing to pay a fortune in fees if I get a great return. So... You've got to evaluate it. If you're getting good fees, yes. Uh, yeah, sorry, if you're getting good returns, despite the fees that are being paid, then, yeah, I mean, you're getting experienced expert people who do this day in, day out. There is a lot to managing uh, and keeping on top of commercial property. And as I said, there are some great value out there in the marketplace for people who don't have the time to look at and manage them properly and miss things like, you know, rental increases or exclusivity stuff or things like that on leases so there are with active management you are getting uh, you're getting the experience people who are working with it day in day out keeping an eye on these things and yeah you're benefiting from that while you're maybe doing a job or earning income in another place so yeah there's that um a couple of things I would look for if I was going into a, a managed investment trust is fees, as I said, looking at management to see their experience, looking at alignment. Um, I want somebody who's going to invest in that trust as well. I want the managers to be involved. I don't know if you've heard the study done in 2005 by Levitt and Svenson, Svenson I think his name was, um, which looked at real estate agents and um, the properties that they sold for themselves, as in their own homes, or the properties they sold for others. This study found that real estate agents who sold their own homes sold them for more than they would have sold another home for somebody else. They were getting a better benefit. Mm. And that's because that was aligned with their return. You're going to work harder on your own thing than somebody else's thing. So a manager who's invested, who's aligned with you, is, is great. I mean, we're highly invested in all our trusts because it's the stuff that we do. It's the stuff we want to get involved in. It's the stuff we want to profit out of. Uh, we work harder on that stuff than you know, somebody else who's just buying it for a third party. So, yeah, investors come in. They know that we're aligned with what we're doing. They're probably the three main things I'd look yeah, at. Yeah, there's a... There's a lot of power in the incentives, isn't it? That's the that's the Levitt of uh, Freakonomics fame, right? Yes, Stephen Levitt. Yes, that's right. 
There you go. That's a good book. And yeah, they've got some interesting stories to tell about uh, real estate agents and, and even sumo wrestlers. <laughs> um, on that note, uh, Wayne, if if people are wanting to get in touch with you, that sounds like a poor intro, like you're a sumo wrestler. <laughs> um, we, we, we'll we'll finish we'll we'll finish off today. But if people are wanting to get uh, in in touch with yourself, uh, Wayne, what's the best way to do that? Mike, I'm far from a sumo wrestler. If you saw me, I'm the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to I've get- seen I've seen your photo actually, so it's hard <laughs> to be offended. You're you're a very lean looking chap. Um, if you want to get in contact with me, um, my email address is Wayne W A Y N E at activecommercial.com.au. Um, or you can jump on the website that's active property group, activepropertygroup.com.au. Um, the Active Property Group, we have a couple of different funds and a couple of different structures involved. Um, you can register for an interest to invest. Um, I'm also pulling together a commercial property masterclass, which I hope to be releasing soon, which people might want to get involved in. So I'll have a look at If you're interested, drop me an email and I'll keep you informed when that comes out. Beautiful. Yes, keep us informed as well, and we'll share that through our our Gear for Growth uh, socials as well, Wayne. Because I'm sure there'll be a lot of people interested in that. Now, to to finish this off, if there's one piece of advice that you can leave the listeners with, what would that be? <laughs> it's a great question, Mike. Um, one piece of advice, I would probably say, don't be afraid of the numbers. In commercial real estate, the numbers can be quite big. But that doesn't necessarily mean more risky. You can often find a great deal because everybody else is afraid that's too big a number. When I first started doing this, I mean, coming from residential, you're looking at $4 million buildings. You think, wow, that's a big jump. I mean, most expensive residential I bought Mm. was a million. Four million, wow. But it returned a lot better than the million dollar uh, residential and it was uh, it was multi-tenant so it was really safe, it was good property to buy. So yeah, don't be afraid of the big numbers. Beautiful. Wayne, it's been a real uh, pleasure and very illuminating. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Mike. It's great talking to you. Cheers. Thanks, Mike.